Well, good morning again. If you would, take the Word of God, please, and go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Those of you who come frequently know this, but those of you who may have just started coming or maybe this is your first time with us, um, just to share with you what we're doing, we are slowly and systematically working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And uh, Pastor Josh started this a few weeks ago, and this is uh, one of the distinctives of First Baptist Church Fairdale. We do expository preaching from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, which means that we started at chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Peter, and we are working our way verse by verse, word by word, phrase by phrase through this passage because we believe that's the best way for us to understand it, the best way for us to apply it uh, to our lives. And so uh, we're grateful to be able to do that. Our verses for today in 1 Peter 1 will be verses 13 through 16, and we'll expose the contents of those verses as we go today. You may be wondering where Pastor Josh is. Josh, uh, every year in February, he takes the opportunity to uh, go to the Massac Area Youth Retreat, which is in Mitchell, Indiana. And he, he, for the last few years anyway, has been preaching uh, to that group. There's 200 and 250 young people that he's talking to right now. And I know that he would appreciate it if uh, you would take just a moment to pray for him as he's sharing this morning. And we're grateful that he has the opportunity to do that. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to, uh, to, to be in the pulpit uh, this morning in his stead. Just to, uh, just to help introduce a little bit of, about our passage today, I want to tell you a, uh, a brief story about a bicycle I had growing up. Uh, now, the bicycle's name was Mudcat. I want to explain a little bit before you start drawing conclusions about me that, oh, he's the weird kid that used to name all his inanimate objects. Uh, I was a weird kid, by the way, but I didn't name everything. My bike's name was Mudcat because those of you who are about my age will, will remember this. Those BMX bikes didn't look quite so cool like they did they do now back when I was growing up, but they would have a little placard that was in the handlebars, a little plastic placard right there, and it would usually have a number on it to make you think like it was a racing bike. And mine had the number five on it, and it also had the name Mudcat on there. And I got a lot of memories about Mudcat. I used to love riding that bicycle. It was red and black. It was really cool looking. It's the bike that I, I learned to ride on. And, and so I took it. I lived in a, in a subdivision, but it was a subdivision that was still in a rural area. And so about 200 yards behind our house was a dirt track. And when I say a dirt track, it was, it was really cool. It was a place that had big, large rocks and boulder-type things. And, and between the rocks was real soft dirt hills. I mean, if, if you're thinking, all right, I got a bike that's like a racing bike, and it's called Mudcat, and uh, it's got hills. And I mean, they were the perfect hills for jumping. And so, uh, I mean, the little crevices. So it's like what Drew Dillman does before Drew was even born. You know? And so it was, it was the dirt track, and it was fun to go to. There's only one problem. My dad forbade me from going to the dirt track. How could my dad forbid me from taking Mudcat to the dirt track? And, and so he had his reasons. He basically had two reasons why he didn't want me to go there. Number one, we didn't own the track. It was on someone else's property. And uh, he, he did not figure, even though the guy did not mind, kids used to go down there and ride their bikes all the time. Dad didn't want me to do it because he was afraid I would get hurt on somebody else's property. The other reason, which was probably a little bit more legitimate reason, was uh, these were the days when BB guns were in vogue. And we used to drink Coca-Colas out of 12-ounce and 20-ounce bottles. Remember this? They were real bottles. They weren't plastic like they are now. I mean, they were, they were real bottles. And so there was also a store nearby, 
And so kids would go to the store, they would get their, those glass bottles, they would drink their Coke, and then they would take their BB guns and, and explode, you know, they'd go shoot the, the, uh, the bottles and they'd go everywhere. So there were shards of glass all over the place down there. And so dad didn't want me going. And, and I used to get so frustrated by that because I got Mudcat, it's a racing bike, and I'm young, and this is fun, and it's a bunch of hills there. Dad, you don't understand. And so I would, what do you think I did? Well, I'll just ask you, what do you think I did about that? Yeah. Yeah, I did it. Uh, every time he wasn't home and I wanted to go ride the bicycle, I would go get on Mudcat and I'd go down to the dirt track because I could see the highway. And most of the time, I would just justify in my own mind that I'll see him if he's coming. So I would weigh the risk versus the reward. And more times than not, I would go and I would ride the motorbike down there. Here's the problem. I did not realize then what my dad's motives were for not being down there. I thought, like most six, seven, eight, nine-year-old boys, Dad just wants to exercise control over me. He's just trying to control my behavior. He just wants it. He don't want me to have any fun. Dad, this is my cat. You don't understand, Dad. And so I would take the bike, and I'd go do it. Well, what do you think happened to me? Yeah. Back then, they didn't take bikes away uh, because that actually took more time. Back then, Daddy would... Grab that belt off right here, right here. I told you, boy, not to be down there on that dirt bike. And he would give me what was referred to then as a whooping, right? And uh, anybody in here remember a whooping? Yeah. Everybody in here are 40 and older. Just raise their hands. Yeah. Dad would give me a whipping. That was Dad's attempt to, at behavior modification, okay? Dad told me what to do. I chose to rebel. Dad chose to modify my behavior with a leather belt. Now here's the thing. I didn't understand my dad's motives. So what do you think happened the next time I wanted to go back down to the dirt track on Mudcat? I did it again. And I'd do it again. And I would weigh the risk versus the reward, and I probably got about a half dozen whoopings in my life from that. But yet here I am today. And so I didn't understand. His motive was indeed to control my behavior, my motive, and listen closely, my motive was to continue doing what I was doing, but to try not to get caught. My motive was to push it as far as I could push it, to do what I thought I could get away with doing, riding over those hills with one eye on the highway trying to look for Dad so that I could beat him back that 200 yards to the house, right? And so I would continue to do that, even though I knew that I would probably eventually get caught and get punished. We're like that as Christians sometimes too, aren't we? In regards to our relationship with God and our response to God and the way that we live our lives in light of proclaimed Scripture and what Scripture tells us to do, we see God, we know God, we've experienced God in salvation, we've got God's Word, we know what it says because we've got faithful teachers to help us to learn, and because the Holy Spirit of God illuminates Scripture to help us to understand. So we don't have the excuse of not understanding. We have it. But yet we often get tricked into looking at the Christian life as a set of do's and don'ts. We often get tricked into looking at Scripture and at the Bible as an instruction manual, don't we? This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm not supposed to do. And what we're doing is, when we do that, we're just like I was with my dad. I don't understand the motive, therefore I'm going to see how much I can get away with 
even though knowing I'll probably get caught. We're the same way as Christians. We'll push it and we'll see just what we can get away with even though we know what's wrong. And I just want to tell you, if you're listening to me, say amen. There's a lot of churches today that are teaching that. There's a lot of churches today that teach the Bible this way. They, without calling it such, they, they teach behavior modification instead of transformation. They stand up in the pulpit and they treat the Bible as if it is a, a list of do's and don'ts instead of teaching a person what it means to be completely transformed and changed due to a person's surrender to Christ and now God's lordship in their life. People who view the Christian life as behavior modification often end up where I ended up, right? I'm going to push it. I'm going to see just what I can do. I'm going to behave the best I can, but I know I'm going to mess up. I'm going to, I'm going to try my best, but I know I'm going to mess up and I'm going to be okay with messing up. I'm going to keep, keep doing this instead of saying, my life belongs to Him. I am surrendered to Him with every aspect of my life. And so that's what I'm going to practice with every single thing that I do. The problem with behavior modification is that its motive is all wrong. And that's why I total, titled my message this morning, Good Behavior is Not Good Enough. Good behavior is not good enough. Christians are indeed expected to behave well, but we have a different motive for living right. If you will, take the Word of God in your hands and stand with me this morning. I always like for us to stand as we read Scripture together in reverence to God's Holy Word. We're going to read together 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. If you're ready for God's Word this morning, say Amen. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would humble us this morning to receive Your Word. Lord, make us meek. Make us willing to, to look beyond the, the words that would lead us toward behavior. And Lord, help us to understand and grasp the concept of holiness, which is to live in Your likeness, to be like You, to be set apart like You. And Father, I pray that when we leave here, we won't leave here seeking to change our behavior we will leave here seeking to be transformed into what You have intended for us to be from the day that You changed us and brought us out of the darkness and into the light. Thank You, Lord, for meeting with us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Vance Havner was a Baptist preacher in the mid-1900s. One of our speakers at chapel on campus this week reminded us of a quote from Vance Havner, and this is the quote, What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. You ever heard that before? Pretty simple. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. How many of you in here have ever drawn anything out of a well? Several of you have drawn. Have you ever put the bucket down in the well and drawn up coffee? Anybody ever put the bucket down in the well and pulled up Kool-Aid? No. It's absurd to think that. Because what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. It's always going to be water. Because that's what's down there. Same way in the life of a Christian. What is in your life? What defines your life? What you're identified by will come out in the way that you live your life. In the way that you present yourself. In the way that you adhere to the things of God. Your life will be modeled in the likeness of the One 
who saved you. We aren't saved by Christ to behave rightly. We're saved by Christ to be Christ-like. That's why we're called Christ followers. As we look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it seems like every time I preach, it seems like every time I speak, there's this conjunction. There's always a conjunction at the beginning. This time it's the word, therefore. In verse 13, it's extremely important to us understanding our text this morning. It is a word that ties together verses 13 through 16 that we're going to be looking at with the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. And, and those first 12 verses, Peter lays out for you the premise of your salvation. Peter describes for you where and how your salvation came about. Let's look back at a few of the words that describe that. He says in verse 1 that we are chosen. He says in verse 2 that we are chosen according to God's foreknowledge. What that means is if you are indeed saved this morning, if you're here and you know Him as your personal Savior and Lord, it's not because you've done anything. It's because He chose you. It's because He knew from the beginning of time that you were going to be saved. Your salvation is not an accident. You, being, you sitting here worshiping a holy God is not just out of the blue. It's because He chose you according to the knowledge that He already had about what was going to happen in your life. In verse 2 it also says that we are sprinkled with His blood. It is the blood of Christ that offers you salvation. We have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, Paul told the church at Ephesus. We've contributed nothing to our salvation. It's all the blood of our Savior. Verse 3 says, according to His great mercy. Mercy is not giving to you what you deserve. Mercy is withholding from you what you deserve. As someone who is an enemy of God and separated from God, you deserve eternal death. You deserve eternal separation from God. God showing you His mercy is not giving you that. And then it says, but instead, and also in verse 3, it says, we are born again to a living hope. Paul talks about that with the church at Corinth. We're new people. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That old self-reliance that you had. My way of doing things. I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. I, I can do this on my own. You realize that that doesn't work for you. You can't save yourself. You can't have a relationship with God by doing things your way. You have to surrender. You have to give up and allow Him to make you new. And because of that, you have a hope that extends to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not, not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That word, therefore, pulls those realities of what God has done for you and it pulls them together with the present obligations for your salvation. If you're, if you're listening to me, wave at me. It's cold out. I know it's sort of a, a, a day where we have trouble engaging. So I'm helping you to understand this. I hope you understand that you're not just saved to do nothing. I hope you understand that you were not brought out of the darkness into the light. You were not made a child of God in a one-time occurrence just to sort of kind of sit back and do nothing and rest in that. It's not like we say, whew, fire insurance, I'm not going to hell. And then we don't do anything else. This passage alone, verses 13 through 16 that we're going to look about, shows that there are obligations to your salvation. You don't do this to be saved. You don't even have to do this to remain saved. Amen? When you're saved, you are secure. The Spirit of God secures you in your salvation. You, you know Him. You belong to Him. But there are obligations to that. And in these verses, Peter moves from the statement and the premise of salvation to application. He says, because you have experienced this in verses 1 through 12, 
now you're supposed to live like this in verses 13 through 16. And he's not talking about behavior modification. If he was talking about behavior modification, it wouldn't have anything to do with where you were and who you used to be. But the holy life that you're called to living has everything to do with what He has changed you and who He has made you to be. There's three things that I want us to realize about these obligations uh, that salvation places upon the life of the believer. Uh, the first thing I want us to realize in verse 13 are the commands. The commands in the life of a believer. Verse 14 gives us a warning in the life of, for the life of the believer for the believer. And verses 15 and 16 gives you an expectation for the believer. Let's start by looking at the commands. Actually, there are three commands in verse 13 if you look at them. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the way that this is broken down, the way that this works is the primary imperative, the main command, the overarching command in that is that phrase, fix your hope. Okay? Those other two phrases that come before are actually, actually participial, meaning that they point to that phrase, keep your hope. I like how the English Standard Version, the ESV, if you've got an ESV Bible, this is what it says. I think it explains it better. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. Meaning what it does is the preparing your mind and the being sober point to fixing your hope on Him. And so let's look at that command to fix your hope First, and, and we've talked about this before. The hope that is spoken of in the New Testament, the hope that is spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, is not a hope that we are mostly familiar with in the way that we talk, right? Uh, I'll guarantee you, I will guarantee you, before this day is over, uh, my kids on the way home from church today will say something to this effect. Boy, I hope we stop and get something to eat on the way home. Why do I know that? Because they say that every single week when we leave here. Uh, and they say it like in front of Jennifer and I, like it's trying to convince us, like a subliminal thing. You know, I hope mom and dad let us stop and get something to eat on the way home, you know, and trying to convince us. Listen, that hope that they're talking about there is an emotional desire for something to take place. It's like me saying, I hope we don't get six inches of snow tonight. By the way, I hope we don't get six inches of snow tonight. There's a lot of teachers in here saying, no, we do want six inches of snow tonight. The hope that we often think of when we say that word is it's an emotional desire for something to happen, or an emotional desire for something to take place. But the word used for hope in verse 13 indicates a complete hope of certainty. The idea is a certainty that, that a particular event or an activity is going to take place. And we see that in, in Scripture elsewhere. Paul reassured the believers at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. It says, He who calls you or has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's, it's talking about a hope that is a certainty. It's talking about a hope in God's faithfulness to the end. It's the kind of hope that Abraham had in the Old Testament, right? And when, when God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham looked, well, I'm a hundred years old, and there's my wife Sarah, and, and she's old and barren. But yet he had hope. And not the hope, but gee, I hope in some kind of emotional way that God will cause this to happen. It was an assurance that God was going to do it. And Paul was telling the believers at Rome about this. In Romans chapter 4, he says, Without becoming weak in faith, he, meaning Abraham, 
contemplated his own body, now good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. He wasn't just hoping in an emotional way that God would cause this to happen, even though I'm sure it was emotional for him. He knew God promised he's going to make me the father of nations, and he's going to do it. And so that's what's going to happen. And guess what? God blessed that. God honored that. And he had Isaac. And so the story goes. He expressed a biblical hope, looking to the future with full assurance that God was going to do that. And in this passage, Peter's doing exactly the same thing. He told these Gentile and these Jewish hearers that were listening to him and believers that were reading him to to fix or to anchor their hope completely on the grace that was to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was pointing to the second coming of Christ. He was pointing to the fact that Christ was going to do what was promising, that He Himself promised and that He was going to come again. Peter was saying, fix your hope on that. Put the full weight of your certainty on Christ's return and live your life as if Christ is returning. Do you live your life like Christ is returning? Do you live your life? Meaning this, You don't see your life as just one step in front of the other. But you know that one day, we're experiencing grace, the first fruits of grace right now, right? In our salvation. We're experiencing the first fruits of grace in the relationship that He allows us to joy as resident aliens on this earth. But there is a time when His grace will be consummated, when He returns, and we will have eternity with Him. And that should motivate us and inform us in the way that we live our lives today. And listen to me, when we're talking about hope, this kind of hope, this kind of certain hope, Peter is the perfect person to be writing about this, right? If you remember, back in the Gospels, it was Peter, when Jesus was alive, who was in the boat, and the storm was coming, and the waves were tossing the boat, and Jesus was coming to him and called Peter to him, and Peter stepped over the side of the boat and walked on water, Because he had his eyes fixed on Christ. But what happened to Peter when he took his eyes off Christ? When his hope was not fixed and anchored on the object of his salvation, which was Christ, what happened to him? He began to sink. And yet he did not sink after he fixed his hope back where it was supposed to be. It's the same way for you and I, folks. Peter was the uh, the best person to be writing about this because he fixed his hope on Christ and anchored his hope on Christ in a very real manifestation of that that we have recorded in Scripture. And likewise, you and I should do the same thing, trying to live for Him. And listen to me. If we fix our hope on anything less than Christ, if we think of anything less than Christ's return, if that's not a motivating factor in our life, then what you're left with is behavior modification. What you're left... If you're not fixing your hope on Christ, if you don't have Him in the big picture of how you're trying to live your life, then the best you can hope for is to behave well, to live life the best that you can. But that's not what a Christian's supposed to do. We're supposed to center our thoughts on the fact that God has rescued us and that one day He's coming again. But until that time, until that time, we're to be walking with Him and living for Him according to the standards, the standards that He has put for us in Scripture. A Christian that's fixed his hope on Christ's return has a greater motivation for present obedience. And those two participial phrases that we, we looked over a minute ago, we're going to come back to those now. 
Because those phrases lead us into the command to fix your hope and tell us how we can fulfill that command. If you're listening to me, say amen. Prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. If you're reading, I think it's from the King James Version this morning, it may something, say something like, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we studied that, that, that verb to gird earlier before Christmas on Sunday nights. We were going through the, uh, the fruits of the Spirit. And uh, it talked about one of the fruits of the Spirit is gird up, the, gird up your loins. And so the whole idea of girding is to pull up any hindrance around you and to fasten it so that you'll be able to hasten, so that you'll be able to act, so that you'll be able to move quickly. It's the idea of uh, uh, perhaps of a Roman soldier who's got his armor on and he's going into battle and they would wear long robes and tunics and those kind of things. And so they would have, it would hinder them from running, it would hinder them from performing. So they would pull it up like this and then they would grab a, a, some kind of belt or sash or something and they would tie it together. And so when Peter is talking here, uh, to, to those Gentile and Jewish believers, what he's saying about their mind is, uh, gird up, or, or metaphorically he was telling them, to pull up the loose ends of your mind. Tighten it up. Be single focused. Don't be all over the place thinking about this or thinking about that. If they wanted to live right in light of their salvation, they could not tolerate looseness or slackness in their lives. You cannot to- tolerate looseness or slackness in, your th- in slackness in your thought life. And we live in an age, and tell me if I'm right here, we live in an age where we would rather feel than think. Would you agree with that? Everything about us makes us want to feel than think. If you don't believe me, go back and look at the commercials from the Super Bowl a few weeks ago. The commercials weren't made, to, they, they, didn't create, they don't create commercials for you to make you think. They create commercials for you to make you feel. I see that every time I go to the movie. You ever seen that? Uh, you go to a movie theater and the movie's fixing to come on and uh, all of a sudden the whole screen shows ice dropping down into, and, you know, and then uh, it drops down in there and then the fizz comes up and the, uh, the straw is there and it makes you believe, you know, that what is it meant to do? It's meant to make you thirsty. It's meant to appeal to your senses and to make you want that. And so our whole culture is that way. We're, we're, we're taught to feel rather than think. But what Peter is telling us here is to prepare your mind for action. Get rid of the looseness, those things that would encumber you. We need to be people, especially those of us who are born again, we need to be people who think. We need churches that teach people to think rightly about Scripture. Friends, I'm burdened by the fact that there are churches galore, even in Jefferson County, that are more concerned with entertaining and making you feel than they are making you think about your salvation making you ponder the things of God, making you desire Him because of what Scripture has revealed about Him, not necessarily what you're feeling in the moment. That's a dangerous thing. Peter's saying here, if you want to fix your hope on God, if you want to fix your hope on the grace that is to be brought about in the second coming of of Christ, what you have to do is you have to pull up the slackness of your mind. You have to tighten that up. It's not about what you feel. It's about what you think. Secondly, He says, not only are you to have a disciplined mind, but believers are supposed to remain sober in spirit to keep their hope fixed on this grace. Literally, to be sober means to not be drunk, right? If if I say remain sober, you think it means to not be drunk, and that is literally what it means. But broadly, it means to live a life of self-control. Your life as a believer ought to be marked by self-control. 
Galatians chapter 5 talks about that as one of the fruits of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, a verse that probably all of you have heard before, gives you the contrast between a life that is sober and a life that is dedicated to be filled by the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18 says, And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but contraction sets the difference. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. If anything pollutes your mind at all, then it hinders your ability to be filled by the Spirit. People ask me all the time, what do I think about drinking? What is your, what, can I or can I not? And I've got an answer for that, and I'll be happy to tell you that answer later. I'm not going to take time to do that now, but I will tell you what I tell them. I'll tell them what law enforcement tells them. Uh, if there's anybody in law enforcement here, they'll tell you this about being drunk or being high. The first hit of marijuana, the first sip of alcohol, the first snort of cocaine, or whatever it is that, that you take, that, that you indulge in in that way, the very first drink, sip, or snort that you take dilutes your mind and makes you less than sober. It doesn't take multiple drinks. It doesn't take multiple hits. It doesn't take multiple snorts. Anything in your life that causes you, that, that, that causes you to not be able to think clearly, to not be sober, because we're commanded here to be sober, hinders your ability to be in a right relationship with God. It hinders your ability to be led by the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, something else has entered your life and controlling you has some kind of influence over you other than the Spirit of God. And believers, look at me. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. So, do not be drunk wine. Be sober in all that you do. Now, I've taken a long time to explain this, this command, this first point, but I, want, I hope it's clear to you what Peter was saying. What Peter was saying was in light of the salvation that I told you about that we have in verses 1 through 12, in light of that salvation, you should live this way. You should be someone who prepares your mind for action, keeping sober in the Spirit so that you will be able to fix your hope completely on the grace of Christ, of God that's going to be revealed in the second coming of Christ. So number one, we have a command. Number two, we have a warning. The second obligation that salvation places on the believer is a warning. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed in the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. If that sounds familiar, it's because it is familiar. It's a similar refrain to uh, the, probably the more popular verse that says the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a, holy and li a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Peter's message in verse 14 goes right along. You're supposed to fix your hope on God, but how do you do that? What do you do? What, what, what is, that's your motivation, but then what does it involve? In light of that salvation, it involves you not conforming to the world. There's a reader, reason why uh, Peter used the term former lust. If you're, if, if you're listening to me, wave at me. If you're a Christian, I'm going to state the obvious. Your life ought to be different today than it was before you were saved. There ought to be some formers in your life. I formally did this. I formally said that. I used to believe this. I used to go here. I used to do that. There are some former things in your life that would control you, that would define you, that would identify you. 
Sometimes you did that because you were ignorant. You were ignorant that it was against God's will to do that. You, you did that knowing that it might be wrong socially and culturally, but not really understanding that that was wrong for you to do in light of God and His, His desire for you to, to, to belong to Him. But now that the light of the gospel has shone forth in your life, and you've been changed and transformed, you can't use ignorance as an excuse anymore. And I see too many times believers that do that. They try to hide behind, well, I know, I'm just doing it a little bit, or, uh, you know, I didn't really mean to do it, but I messed up. We can't claim that anymore. They're supposed to be former lusts. Um, two things to take note of in this warning in verse 14. Number one, we're to be obedient children. And the argument here is simple. Children inherit the nature of their parents. If you don't believe that, I can get Andrew to come down here. Andrew's my 13-year-old son. Trust me, if you know him, you'll know he belongs to me. He looks like me. His posture is like mine. If you got to know him a little bit better, you'd know that his attitude and some of his mannerisms are very similar to mine. He's got big feet, like I've got big feet. He's my son. Children take on the nature of their parents. As someone who's been born again by the Spirit of God, your nature should have been changed to be like your Heavenly Father. It should not look like it formerly used to look like. You should not lust after the things you formerly used to lust after or want the things you formerly wanted. You're to be obedient children. I uh, got a little thing. Whenever I preach, I go to uh, Shoney's the morning that I preach. Uh, I'm, I, can't, I can't get up here. You guys know I have my glass of water every time I get up and preach. Well, um, I also one of my other little nuances is I have to get away from the house. And uh, I usually go to Shoney's and eat. And so sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not such a good thing. This morning I went to Shoney's, and on this side I was, had a, 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 a young person, a family that was sitting there. It was just one kid, and that kid would just not be quiet. I'm, now, granted, if I want to go somewhere quiet, I didn't need to go to Shoney's. But, I mean, so I'm sitting there eating, and I'm reading, I'm studying, I'm praying. And this kid's just on and on and on. And then they see the family next to me where the kid is... They've got three children, and the kids are perfectly obedient. I mean, like, they do everything right. She didn't have to give them any instructions. They went to the food bar. They got all their food. They went and sat down. And, and the difference between them was just obviously disobedient obedient. It's a great contrast. There should be a contrast between non-believers and believers. Because now you're called to be an obedient child. Why? Because of what he said in verses 1 through 12. These verses all go together. You're supposed to be an obedient child. True salvation. Listen. True salvation always, always, always manifests itself in obedience. doesn't mean you won't stumble and fail from time to time and sometimes, but it doesn't mean that your life will be marked by it. True salvation always results in obedience. Number two, second part of this warning, do not be conformed to your former lusts. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, we're to be nonconformists. We're to be nonconformists. We practice the ethic of God rather than the ethic of this world. We practice the ethic of God rather than the ethic of this world. Now, some people take nonconformity to a different place. In southern middle Tennessee, there's an Amish community. And if you go down there, uh, they, they are, are very self-contained. Uh, the ladies don't wear makeup. They don't do anything with their hair. They wear long skirts. The guys do not wear... Uh, anything with buttons on them at all. Uh, I don't think they shave. I don't think they cut their hair. Uh, they, drive, they don't drive cars. They, they take, take buggies everywhere that they go. Uh, they don't have electricity in their homes. 
Uh, they're very industrious. They either farm or they make furniture, but whatever they do, they don't use tools. They don't use tools like you and I would use tools, certainly no electric tools. And so they are very, what they've done is they, they've taken nonconformity to a, to, a, to a different place. They've taken nonconformity to just completely withdraw from everything. And you won't see really in Scripture, we're, we're, we're in the world, but not of the world. That's the way that we're supposed to live our life. We're supposed to live our life in the midst of people, helping to draw them to Christ as God leads. We're not supposed to completely withdraw. We're supposed to completely withdraw from those things which take us away from God. But we're not supposed to completely withdraw. What, what Peter is talking about here is he's challenging those believers to remember the former and to step back from their former lifestyle, to step back from their sins, to take themselves out of a place where they used to be enslaved and entangled by sin. Let me ask you this. Are you doing that in your life? As someone who's been born again, someone who has testified before this church, by being a member of this church. And by the way, when you become a member of First Baptist Church Fairdale, you are testifying to the fact that you have been saved by grace through faith. And so you become a member of the church. And so you're testifying to that. And let me ask you, does your lifestyle prove that you've got some former lusts? Does it prove that there are some things that you're not conformed to anymore? The New Testament is very clear about this. There are several passages. We talked about Romans chapter 12. We're in 1 Peter now. Ephesians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 1. All talk about not being conformed, putting on the new self, setting your mind on things above. And I hope you've noticed a progression. You should be noticing a progression here. Number one, the command. The command to fix your hope on the grace of God to be brought about with His return. That's your motivation. Number two, the warning. The warning to not be conformed to the former lust which formerly controlled us. That's what we should avoid. But number three is an expectation. That's verses 15 and 16. And the expectation is that we should live holy lives. And this is what we should practice daily. There are some things that are a motivation. There are some things that we should not be doing. There are some things that you should be doing. Amen? As a believer, there are some things that should mark your lives as holiness. And one way to describe this expectation that we see in verses 15 and 16 is that we're to exchange our former lust for the family likeness. We're to exchange our former lusts for the family likeness. Meaning, we're made a child of God and a joint heir of Christ. And verse 15 and 16 says that we're to be holy because He's holy. Very simple to understand. To, to understand this holiness, we first must understand what it means for God to be holy. And that whole that term is used in Scripture of God being holy to describe His transcendence or His difference from anything else in created order. You might say that God's otherness, I think I read somewhere this week. It's, it's that aspect of God that is almost undefined because it's so transcendent, because it's so different. He's just other than anything else. And you and I know, we can't match God's transcendence, can we? We can't match that holiness. There's nothing about us that's able to do that. However, there ought to be something about our lives that's different and set apart because that word holy means to be separated. The basic idea of holiness in the Bible is that of believers being separated from anything that is profane or prohibited in Scripture. I hope you're getting this. We don't like to hear this. It's, it's, I understand when I was preparing this this week, I even said to myself, Troy, you're going to be preachy. 
You're going to be preachy this week. Don't do this. Do that. Be holy. I think I sort of kind of got the right to do that because it's in Scripture. And Scripture clearly tells us to be set apart. Live lives that are set apart. 2 Timothy verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9 indicates that we've been saved and called with a holy calling. Other words that are used, other verbs that are used in the New Testament to describe what it takes for a believer to be set apart are to sanctify, to purify, or to dedicate oneself. And the overwhelming reason for God's people to live in holiness is in their relationship with God is like the Holy One who has called you, be holy. That's your charge is to be holy. Verse 16, if you look down in there where it says, it, maybe your, your text says it in a different font or has it in a little bit different font. Anytime a Bible does that, it's referring to another passage somewhere in Scripture. So Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44 is referred to in 1 Peter 1 verse 16. And if you go back, we won't go back and look at it, but if you go back and look at Leviticus 11.44, it's a chapter which describes ceremonial cleanness. It talks about the Jewish dietary law and how the people of Israel were called to separate themselves from being unclean because it was, for un, it was forbidden by the law. Well, guess what? You and I, as New Testament believers, as people who've been saved by grace through faith, through, through, through Christ's sacrifice for us, we're also called to live lives that are clean. We're also supposed to avoid uncleanness. We're also supposed to be holy, not because the law forbids it, but because God forbids it and calls us to a different standard. And Peter tells his readers of this letter that that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to imitate God in His difference, to identify with Him by separating ourselves from the world's ways. Have you done that? Have you separated yourself from the world's way? Because I look, at, I look today and God has given me the opportunity... Jennifer, you can correct my math later. One, two, three, four. This is the fifth church that God's given me the privilege of being a part of. Um, I've studied at, had the privilege of studying at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, studying church history, studying church models and different ways that things are going on. I pay close attention to, to these things and, and sort of the Christian culture. And uh, too often... I find Christians who are doing their best, by the way, I'll lump myself into this too, oftentimes, doing our best to live right, but not necessarily doing our best to live holy. And a lot of the reason for that is because we've gotten caught up in this little cycle of trying behavior modification. Sometimes it's implied directly at churches, sometimes it's implied indirectly. 1 Peter chapter 1 makes it clear that our motivation for living a holy life is what He has already done for us and because of how we're identified. And you and I have a responsibility to evaluate our lives. And this isn't fun. This isn't fun stuff. Uh, I remember when I used to play basketball and uh, I hated film day. I hated it. I would leave a ball game thinking, dude, I was awesome. That was cool. 20 points, 12 rebounds. Woo, I'm, I'm, I'm the stuff. And then we go back and we had a kind of coach who would point out every little mistake you made. All right, Troy, you got that rebound, but you didn't block out. You got lucky. Or, Troy, you hit that shot, but, you know, you, didn't, you weren't where you're supposed to be. You weren't running the play ride, whatever. So he would make us evaluate what we did. Christian, you ought to be evaluating your life on a regular basis to determine whether you're just trying to behave rightly or if you're trying to behave holy or trying to live holy. I want to ask you a couple of questions. 
And I'm going to ask you to evaluate yourself because this is an application text. This is a text that calls you and I to consider our lives. So let me ask you some questions based on these passages and evaluate yourself for just a moment. Number one, what are you more likely to fix your hope on? Your current circumstances or the revealed promise that you have been saved and your ultimate destiny rests in the revelation of Jesus Christ and His return? Are you caught up in your circumstances? Where is your hope anchored? Is it fixed? Is it sure? Do you live your life in light of the certainty that you have been saved and that ultimately you belong to Him and will be with Him forever? That changes the way you look at your life. Number two, would those people closest to you say there's been a big difference in you since you have professed your faith in Christ? Would those persons closest to you say there's been a big difference in you since you have professed your faith in Christ? I'll look over to this side of the room at this moment. If you're a, if you're a young person, wave your hand. Yep, you're still young, Tabor. You can wave your hand. I see this more frequently in the life of young people, but it's for everyone. Your friends at school, many, we've had a lot of young people come to faith in the last few weeks and months, and we praise God for that. But your friends at school, when you profess Christ, have they seen a difference in your life? Because they should. And it should go beyond behavior. It should be about holy living. Unless we think that I'm just picking on the kids, it may be more evident in their life, but it ought to be just as evident in yours. The people around you, your family, your friends, your co-workers, do they see you living a life of behavior or a holy life? Number three, would those people closest to you say you are more secular or sacred? Would those people closest to you say that you're more secular or sacred? Sacred meaning set apart. There ought to be some things in your life that identify you as someone who's been set apart to reveal the glory of God in your actions and your behavior and your words and your deeds. Number four, do you see yourself? This is about you. Do you see yourself as more godly or more worldly? See, that's what the Spirit of God does in our life. The Spirit of God convicts us whenever we start becoming something that we are not supposed to be. Whenever we start stepping into more worldliness, then it draws us, He draws us back to godliness. I started out today telling you about Mudcat. Love that bike. Makes me want to go out and buy another bike. Andrew, I'm going to borrow your bike, son. Go ride to find a dirt track somewhere. After I became a teenager, maybe even in my early adult years, Dad and I sat down and talked about Mudcat. You know, it's one of those things when he's punishing you, you're not going to talk to him about Mudcat. But after you get older and he can't spank you anymore, you know, you talk about those things. And so I, I, Dad and I, used to, we got a good laugh. Mudcat was rusted and already in the trash. And we were talking about how he used to do that. And, and I used to ask him, Dad, I asked him at that point, I said, Dad, what were you trying to accomplish? I mean... He told me the things like, I didn't want you to get cut with glass, or I didn't want you to get hurt, nobody was down there, so I didn't, you, know, you might get hurt and no one would know you were there. I didn't want you to do all those things. And when it came down to it, what he, really, he, really actually, he really actually told me this. Well, son, I just wanted you to behave the right way. I wanted you to behave. I wanted you to do what I told you to do. He really wasn't looking to change me. He was looking for me to live within the parameters that He had set for me. And that's the difference between that kind of relationship and the relationship that God has placed us in. 
God's changed us. He's not trying to get us to behave a certain way. We've been called and drawn to Him, made a new person with a new identity. And we have a new way to live. He's not trying to control our behavior. He's trying to allow us to know that we're to live lives that are holy, just like He is holy. These are struggles. Again, I'm sorry if it sounds preachy. These are struggles that Christians have. All Christians have them. All Christians face them. They face them daily. Um, Here, just recently, and I don't know why, but I've had many opportunities for counsel, counseling situations, and really not even here at this church, which is 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 a little different. It's, It's people I know and have asked me to speak into their lives and situations, and these are people who profess Christ as believers, and they're struggling. But the one thing that I've noticed more than anything else, the common thread, if you will, is that they're trying to behave right and they don't realize that you just can't, there's no way that you can be good enough. If you're a Christian, you're not told to behave. You're told to be holy. And my encouragement to you this morning is that you will indeed do that. Let me pray for us and we'll we'll have our invitation. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this Word. Lord, it's actually chastising to me because I have often in my own life, in my own struggles, gotten caught up in just trying to behave the right way or the way I think is the right way or even looking at Your Word as a list of do's and don'ts. And Father, I confess that that, there are do's and don'ts in the Bible, but Lord, the motivation for that is not so that I could behave right or look right. My motivation should be that I want to be holy because You're holy. Father, I don't know where folks are this morning, but I pray that You would convince me and everyone else, Lord, that we need to adopt the family likeness as being a child of God. And we need to live like You. And we need to fix our hope on the fact that Your grace will be revealed in the second coming of Christ and we will dwell with You forever and ever. So whatever we're going through in this life, Lord, we can overcome. Our hope should be anchored in You. Therefore, we should not conform to the lusts of this world, but we should be holy as You're holy. Lord, I pray that You would etch that into our minds today and change us for Your glory. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. I, uh...